Let's pray. Father, as we, as we look to your word now, we ask that by your spirit, we would behold you. And that our hearts would find their joy and delight in you this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I remember a while back I was watching a specific interview of a famous worship leader. And her name will remain nameless. But she was talking about God. And she was specifically talking about God as the Trinity. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when she began to speak about the Holy Spirit, she said these words. Now I want to be fair, she said some good things, but within those good things she also said this. What people don't know about the Holy Spirit is that he's fun. I view him like the genie from Aladdin. He's funny, sneaky, and he's silly. That's who he is to me. Now you can only imagine how I reacted when I first saw that interview. If I was in a conversation with her and she said those words to me, I probably would have responded to her with something like this. I don't really care what he is to you. I care about whether he's actually those things. I care about who the Holy Spirit actually is, not what you view him to be, but what he says about himself in the revealed word of God. The Holy Spirit is not silly. He's not sneaky. He is the third person of the Trinity, and he deserves our reverence. There's a growing concern that I have that's deepened and has become more concrete over time. And the concern is this, that a great majority of self-professing Christians who go to evangelical churches, Bible-believing churches, don't actually know who God is and his ways. And there's many possible reasons for this, but I, I think the main reason is that you can actually go to many Bible-believing churches and never actually learn or study about God. They, they might go to church to get great biblical principles on how to be a better husband or a better parent or, or how to be better with your money or, or how to learn to forgive better or be more disciplined and self-control. Self-controlled. And, and don't get me wrong, the Bible has a lot to say on all of those things and, and God is concerned about how we live. But he's fundamentally concerned with whether or not we know who he is. You know, I've heard many Christians say things like, theology doesn't matter. We just need to love people like Jesus did. Yet in that very statement, they're making a theological claim. They're saying that the study of God is irrelevant to life. See, what you believe about God, according to the scriptures, isn't irrelevant. The most important question a human being can ask is, who 
is God? Who is God? Does it make any difference whether or not God is holy? Does it make any difference whether or not God is impersonal or personal? Does it make any difference whether or not God is all-powerful and sovereign? Or whether he's righteous, good, just, merciful, loving? Does it make any difference? And the Bible would tell us that what you believe about God matters. It matters greatly. It matters exponentially. A.W. Tozer, the great author, Christian author in the 20th century, said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. This is why I mentioned last week that my fundamental goal in preaching isn't that you'd be a better husband or a better mother or a better student or a better friend or or better with your money or more disciplined in your life or have more control over your sexuality. All of those things are important and in my preaching those things will be addressed because the word of God addresses them. But my fundamental goal in preaching is to reveal God, to make him known and his ways known to us. And so this leads this morning to the second mark of a healthy church. The second mark of a healthy church. I've given you an outline in your bulletin because we're going to be jumping from text to text. And I want to encourage you, don't try to keep up with me. But I've given you those texts so that if you want, you can go home and look at them later. But the second mark of a healthy Christ-honoring church is this. A commitment to biblical theology. A commitment to biblical theology. Last week we began the series on the marks of a healthy Christ-honoring church. And and we looked at the first mark of a healthy church and that was expositional preaching. As a church we must be committed to the unfolding of God's word week in and week out. And the second mark, biblical theology, really just flows from the first mark. If we preach the word expositionally, biblical theology will become a reality. And what this means is that the how of preaching isn't only important, but also the what, the content of preaching. 
You should be concerned not just how I preach, but also what I preach. Am I being faithful to what God says in his word about who he is in his character and the ways he works in in our world and with us? As Mark Dever states, one of the chief marks of a healthy church is a biblical understanding of God in his character and his ways with us. You know, many people tend to think that the Bible is ultimately about ethics or virtues or how to live as a human being. You know, the the Bible is a, a moral book containing great moral ideals. And Jesus was was fundamentally a moral teacher above everything else. And though the Bible does address those things, and and though Jesus was a moral teacher, he was far more than that. That's not ultimately what the Bible is about. If you read the Bible, you'll discover that the Bible is full of history. The Bible is ultimately telling us a story, a historical story about who God is and his ways. And all the emphasis in the Bible on ethics and virtues within the Bible are fundamentally tied to who God is and what he requires for humanity. Which means, as a church, we must be committed to biblical theology, to the study of God and his ways, the the overarching story of the Bible. And so what I want to do this morning is look at specific things about who God is and how they relate to the overarching story of the Bible, the main lines of the story in the scriptures. And by doing this, we will better understand who God is and what that means for our lives. So the first thing that I want us to see is this, that God is a creating God. He is the creator. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're told through all the scriptures that God is the creator. Everything and every being, both seen and unseen, have their existence because of God. There's not a single being in the universe that is self-existent apart from God. God alone is the only uncreated being. He is existence itself. Which means he's utterly unique from all other beings. Because he's the uncreated one and the creator of all that is. As Paul writes in Colossians 1, 16-17, referring to Jesus who is God in the flesh, he says this, For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right now, the universe is being sustained because it is being held together by Christ. The story of the Bible begins with a God who creates all that is. Our existence depends on God and God alone. As Paul speaks in Acts 17 to the intellectuals in Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us in him, for in him we live and move and have our being. So God is the creator and our existence is because of him. Our sustained existence is because of him. Every breath we have is a gift from the Lord. So what does this mean for us? Well, first... It means that we are utterly dependent upon God for life. You are not an autonomous human being. You are dependent upon your creator for life. Secondly, God has supreme authority over our lives because he created us. Which means that we don't get to dictate what God ought to be like. God gets to dictate what we ought to be like. So at the beginning of the story, we learn of a God who is the creator of all things. Secondly, this creator God is also a personal God. Many people believe in a God. They they believe in a supreme being. But a God who's not fundamentally personal He's not relational. They might believe that there's some kind of supreme being who's created the universe, but he's not relational. He doesn't care about human affairs. And we would call this idea of God deism. But the biblical worldview rejects such a notion. The Bible tells us that God not only created all things, but that he's actively involved in our world. That he's primarily a personal God who desires to share himself with humanity. And this is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which I read for us. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. That's a personal God. He's making man in the image and likeness of him. And then he said, let let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And not only that, in verse 28, he says, and God blessed them. God bestowed his divine favor upon humanity. And then in in Genesis chapter 2, God speaks to the man and gives him a command, demonstrating the personal nature of God. He cares for Adam and how Adam lives. He, He gives a command for his good. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, of course, we know how the story unfolds. Adam and Eve disregard God's command. They rebel against God. They turn from him. And through this one act of rebellion, sin and death enter the world. Adam and Eve are driven out of the presence of God, for sinful creatures cannot enter the presence of God and live. And this event 
Their rebellion is the biblical explanation for all that is wrong in this world, as the Bible describes it, the fall. But the story doesn't end there. Because God is relational. God isn't finished with humanity. Though Adam and Eve sinned against God and the relational dynamic between God and humanity was ruptured, it's not the end of the story. God's still committed to sharing himself with humanity. And so he calls a man by the name of Abram, whom he later calls Abraham. And he tells Abram in Genesis 12, 1-3, that in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth will experience my divine favor. See, God has a plan to bless all the nations. He has a plan to restore that which was lost in the garden. He will again have relationship and fellowship with his image bearers. He has a plan to once again share himself with humanity. And then hundreds of years later, he delivers Abraham's descendants, Israel, from Egypt by signs and wonders. And he calls them to himself and he makes a covenant with them. And he gives them a law that they might walk in right relationship to him. And at the center of the covenant is the declaration by God that is stated over and over again in the scriptures. I will be your God and you will be my people. Over and over again, God reveals himself as a personal God. His aim is to share himself with his image bearers. And you fast forward into the New Testament. Jesus, who is God in the flesh... He dwells amongst humanity. He unites divinity and humanity in this one person. And in his high priestly prayer to his father, he prays this in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may go to heaven? No, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus prays that God, more than anything else, they need to know you, for to know you is eternal life. And of course, at the end of the story, which Josh read for us, where Jesus returns as a triumphant king, we read this in Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The God of the Bible is creator, but he is also a personal God. He longs to share himself with us. He's created us to have relationship and communion with him. And this is both terrifying and wonderful at the same time. It's wonderful because the Christian story tells us that the God of the universe who is infinitely powerful, infinitely good, infinitely lovely, infinitely beautiful, desires to commune with us, to have relationship with us. But it's also terrifying. It's terrifying because it means that the creator of the universe actually is concerned about human affairs. He has a vested interest. You see, deism is comfortable For the sinner. Because though there might be a supreme beam above the universe, he doesn't care about how we live. But the Bible, the God of the Bible does. He's concerned about humanity and humanity's conduct like a father with his children. And that's a terrifying reality for us as human beings. 
because we haven't lived in a manner worthy of him. How we live matters to God. Which leads to my third point. We've seen that God is the creator. He's a personal God. But thirdly, he is a holy God. A holy God. From beginning to end, we discover a God who is not morally indifferent. He's a God who's passionate for holiness precisely because he's holy. God delivers Israel from Egypt. He calls them to himself. He becomes their God, and they're called to represent God on earth. And one of the first things he does is give them the ten words, better known as the Ten Commandments. He's committed to not only delivering them, but also seeing them live in a manner that reflects his character. For example, over and over again in the book of Leviticus which primarily deals with how Israel must approach God in worship, God says, like in Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy. Why? For I am holy. But this creates a problem for us. Because we're not holy. We've sinned against God and have become defiled by sin. We have separated ourselves from God. And because God is holy and loving, he will not tolerate sin. He will justly, righteously punish sin. So how do we as a sinful people be restored to the right relationship with a holy God? Well, there's a very important word in our English Bibles called atonement. Atonement. Which literally means at one mint. At one mint. We need atonement in order that we might be reconciled to God and become at one with this holy God. Every human needs to ask the question how can I relate? And be reconciled to the holy God who made me. And so when we come to the scriptures, we discover that God has established a way for humanity to have their sin atoned. A sacrifice must be made. And this theme of sacrifice goes all the way back to the very beginning with Cain and Abel. And then the the last plague in Egypt, the Passover, God commands that Israel take a lamb without spot or blemish and take the blood of the lamb and to to put it on the doorposts of their homes. So that when the angel of death comes to strike the firstborn of the Egyptians, God will pass over the homes of the Israelites because a sacrifice has been made, blood has been spilled. And then God establishes with Israel a sacrificial system by which Israel could have their sins atoned for and could draw near to God in worship. These sacrifices were a reminder to Israel Israel, that their sin separated them from God and that the wages of sin is death. These sacrifices were a constant reminder to Israel that holiness was required. Yet they were not holy. And therefore, they needed atonement, a way to be made right with God. And as the story unfolds, we discover that actually none of these sacrifices of animals ever truly dealt with sin. 
But they were pointing to a greater sacrifice by which we as humans could truly have our sins forgiven. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist describes him, the Lamb of God. The Lamb without spot or blemish who takes away the sin of the world. Or as the, Hebrew of, as the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 11 and 12 says, And every priest in the Old Testament stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, he was saying, my work is done. One sacrifice for sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us that that God is holy and that a sin sacrifice must be made for us? Well, it means that we must come to God on his terms and not the other way around. It means that we have to wrestle with what the Bible claims we are as humans. The Bible doesn't claim that we're mere victims. That it's our environment that causes us to do bad things. The Bible does not claim that. The Bible claims that we, each of us, by our very nature, are sinful, rebellious creatures. We don't just do sinful things. We are sinful people who, before a holy God, stand guilty and we're in desperate need of forgiveness. See, if God is holy, then that has major implications for how we operate as a church. We must, by the grace of God and the mercy of God shown to us in Christ, strive to be holy as he is holy. We must approach him with reverence. This is why in our services, though there is a place for laughter and joy and all those things, we must remember that we cannot come before God with flippancy and indifference and silliness and trivialness. We are coming before the Holy of Holies. And we must see him as that when we approach him. So the Bible tells us that God is the creator. He's personal. He's a relational God. He's a holy God. And fourth, God is a faithful, loving God. A faithful, loving God. And I put those two together, faithful and loving, because they are so interconnected in the scriptures. In Exodus 34, we're given, in a sense, one of the mysteries of the Bible, one of the riddles of the Bible. We're told that God is faithful, loving, and a forgiving God, yet we're also told that he's holy and just, and he will never clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 6-7, this is what God says to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What an incredible description of God. But then God says this, but who will by no means clear the guilty? 
How is this possible? How can God show faithfulness, steadfast love, forgiveness to us in our sins, yet he says will by no means clear the guilty? How is it possible for God to do that? Well, the unfolding of the story of the Bible is God's way of showing how he will be faithful in loving his people and forgiving them their sins while at the same time never dismissing their sin. The whole story of Israel is God showering them with love and blessing. He's faithful to them, but we're told that they're unfaithful to him. They're the adulterer who abandons their husband, God, and God in his holiness punishes them yet again and again. He forgives them. He shows his faithfulness and his love for them by taking them back. But they continue to abandon him. Yet in the midst of all of Israel's rebellion, God makes promises to Israel. Promises that he intends to keep because he's faithful. Despite their unfaithfulness, he will remain faithful. He promises in Deuteronomy 18 that he will raise up a prophet like Moses who will speak God's words and deliver them from slavery to sin just as Moses delivered them from slavery to Egypt. He promises King David in 2 Samuel 8 that his throne will be established forever and that one of his descendants will reign forever. He promises Israel in Daniel that a Messiah will come, the Lord's anointed, the Son of Man, who will, be, who will rescue God's people. And when you come to the New Testament, you discover that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. He is the prophet like Moses who will not just speak God's words, he will speak as God and will deliver his people from the second exodus, the greater exodus by which he will die for their sins and deliver them from sin and death. He is the fulfillment of the promise to King David. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is a descendant of David and his kingdom will reign forever. But his kingdom will not be limited to the promised land of the Old Testament. But as Psalm 2 declares, the nations shall be his heritage. The ends of the earth will be his possession. He will have dominion from shore to shore. But the greatest demonstration of God's faithfulness and love to his promises is that Jesus, who is king and prophet, would also be the sacrificial lamb by which he would die for the sins of his people. Jesus is the answer to how God can show steadfast love and forgiveness while at the same time never clearing the guilty. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, bears the guilt of his people. He dies in their place so that we might experience God's faithful, forgiving, steadfast love. The innocent one bears the guilt of our sins. The Bible says that God crushed his son on the cross. He will not clear the guilty. But at the same time, on that cross, God was showing you and I mercy because he gave to Jesus what you and I deserved. Condemnation. Judgment. 
You see, Jesus is the proof that God is faithful and loving. As 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is a faithful, loving God, and we see this most clearly in the person in work of Jesus. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. What does this mean for us? Imagine that God wasn't faithful to his promises. Imagine if God said, I'm going to change my mind. Imagine if God said, I don't need to keep my word. Imagine if God wasn't the loving God that he claims to be. The scariest reality in the universe would be a God who's all-powerful, but not loving. But the God of the Bible is not only all-powerful, but he's a faithful, loving God who can be trusted. God is the creator. He is personal. He is holy. He is faithful and loving. And finally, God is a sovereign God. He is a sovereign God. God has a will and a purpose for human history. He has a mission that he's determined to accomplish. From beginning to end, in the Bible, God's plan is to redeem a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue, the promise to Abraham. And he will accomplish his plan through the work of his son. And God will once again dwell in the midst of his people in a new heavens and new earth. The story of the Bible is that God will fulfill his promises and will triumph over evil and will establish his kingdom forever. And the guarantee that this will be accomplished is because God is sovereign. As Dever states, the God of the Bible makes promises and the God of the Bible sovereignly keeps them. The sovereignty of God is often one of the most difficult truths about God for humans to reconcile with. There are even many Christians who reject the idea of the sovereignty of God or at least in part lessen the totality of his sovereignty over all things. But the scriptures are clear. It's an inescapable fact. God is sovereign over every detail of life. He is sovereign over all things. Let me just read to you some passages that demonstrate this. Daniel 4, 34 to 35. This is King Nebuchadnezzar when he realizes who God is and he says this, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 46, 8 to 11, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning 
And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Or Job 42, verse 2. We know the story of Job, God, there's this cosmic battle, so to speak, a dialogue between God and Satan, and God actually allows Satan to inflict Job with horrific suffering. And there's this questioning of Job before God and these his friends who are really bad theologians and not helpful friends. But Job constantly comes before God and he says, what have I done for this to happen? He has all these questions for God, and God never explains himself to Job. He answers Job with his own questions by revealing who he is. Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? Job, were you there when I placed the the sun and the moon and the stars in the skies? Were you there when I created the dinosaurs? Were you there? When I did all of these things and Job gets this clearer revelation of who God is and it leads him in Job 42 to repentance. And this is what he says in his repentance. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Bible declares God's sovereignty over every sphere of life. He is sovereign over nature. As Matthew 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father's will. God is sovereign over humanity. Remember, he calls Moses and, and he says, Moses, you're going to speak for me. And Moses, of course, makes excuses. I, don't, I can't speak well. And God's response to him is powerful. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Or Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. There is not a single political leader who has ever gained any place of authority in our world apart from God's sovereign will. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Acts 4, 27 to 28, the apostles have been arrested and they've they've been set free and, and the people of God, the church is praying. And this is what we read. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, hear this, To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The greatest evil to ever be done by humanity was the murder of God's own son. But it was also God's sovereign plan by which he would conquer sin and evil forever. I could go on and on demonstrating from the scriptures God's sovereign rule over all things, but I won't do that. What does this mean for us? Well, it might surprise you, but it means that we can have hope. 
Because we believe in a God who is sovereign in accomplishing all his purposes. The story of the Bible doesn't end in despair, but a new earth where we will be with God forever and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. He will be our God and we will be his people. And we can have great confidence in this precisely because God has promised he will do this, but he is also sovereign and able to do it. You know, I hear people often say things like, why pray if God is sovereign? And my response is simply, why pray if he isn't sovereign? Why pray to a God who might be well-intentioned, but is not able to sovereignly accomplish his purposes? You see, the sovereignty of God confronts us. It confronts each of us. The sovereignty of God confronts us with the reality that we are not God. That we're not the judge. That we're not the ones who have the right to say what's fair and unfair when it comes to God. The sovereignty of God confronts us with the question, will we trust him with our lives because he knows better? The sovereignty of God has become... One of the sweetest truths in my life. When you truly embrace this truth and grasp it, not just mentally, but in your heart, it changes everything. It changes everything because no matter what horrors I may experience in this life or you may experience in this life, No matter what may happen in this life, I know that God's sovereignly accomplishing his purposes in my life and in your life and in his ultimate purpose for creation. And that one day all evil and suffering will be done away with and we will see our king and we will reign with him forever. This is our God. He is the creator. He is personal. He is holy. He is faithful and loving. He is a sovereign God. And I've only touched the tip of the iceberg this morning about who this God is. I haven't come close to explaining the mysteries of who God is. We should be like the Apostle Paul and In Romans 11, who says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. The study of God and his ways are abundantly practical to our lives. And as a church, we must be committed to know who God is and his ways among us so that we might worship him in a manner that is worthy of him. Let's pray. Father, as Moses prayed, show us your glory. May that be the desire of each of our hearts. 
that we would give our minds, our time, our energy, our sweat, our hearts to knowing you more, to wrestling with who you are and what you are doing. May we be a people who love you and pursue you above all other things. We pray this in Christ's name.